Father St. Benedict, chapter 1st. De Generibus Monacum, of the several kinds of monks and their way of life. It is well known that there are four kinds of monks. First are the Cenobites, that is, those in monasteries who live under a rule or an abbot. The second are the anchorites or hermits, that is, those who, not in the first fervor of religious life, but after a long probation in the monastery, have learned by the help and experience of many to fight against the devil and going forth well armed from the ranks of their brethren to the single-handed combat of the desert are able without the support of others to fight by the strength of their own arm God helping them against the vices of the flesh and their evil thoughts. A third and most painful Sarabites, who have been tried by no rule, nor by the experience of a master as gold in the furnace, but being as soft as lead, and still serving the world in their works, are known by their tonsure to lie to God. These, in twos or threes, or even singly, without a shepherd, shut up, not in the Lord's sheepfolds, but in their own, make a law to themselves in the pleasure of their own desires. Whatever they think fit or choose to do, that they call holy, and what they like not, that they consider unlawful. The fourth kind of monks are those called Girovagi, who spend all their lives long wandering about diverse provinces, staying in different cells for three or four days at a time, ever roaming, with no stability, given up to their own pleasures to the snares of gluttony, and worse in all things than the Sarabites. Of the most wretched life of these, it is better to say nothing than to speak. Leaving them alone, therefore, let us set to work, by the help of God, to lay down a rule for the Sarabites, that is, the strongest of monks. But thou, Lord, have mercy upon us. Thanks be to God. St. Benedict merely alludes to the Cenobites, monks doing battle many times, he says. In fact, this imagery of battle recurs in this first chapter of the Holy Rule several times. The Cenobite lives in a 
synovium, that is a monastery uh, of common life. Even today, on Mount Athos, Holy Mountain, there are Cenobites living the common life under a rule and an abbot, and there are idiorhythmic monks living in small groups following their own uh, customs. And uh, within an idiorhythmic cell, uh, each monk devises his own rule of prayer, his own rule of fasting, his own program of reading. He goes to the Divine Liturgy in Church uh, when he deems it necessary. The uh, idiorhythmic monks of the Holy Mountain generally uh, take counsel with an elder and uh, vow obedience to one elder, but each man lives uh, according to his own rhythm, possibilities, and graces. There is no common life. So what St. Benedict describes uh, in this chapter perdures even to this day in various forms on the Holy Mountain and elsewhere in the Christian East. St. Benedict does not elaborate on the Cenobites. He will return to them briefly at the end of the chapter. Given that the whole rule is for Cenobites and will set forth their way of life, there's no need in the first chapter for a lengthy or detailed description of it. St. Benedict then treats of anchorites or permits. Let it be said that our father St. Benedict is favorably disposed to anchorites or hermits. He has no prejudice against the eremitical life, but he sets four conditions in place. The hermit monk is no longer in the first fervor of religious life. For St. Benedict, the hermit monk is already a seasoned old warrior. He has served a long probation in the monastery. He has learned by the help and experience of many to fight against the devil. He is resolved and ready to fight by the strength of his own arm, God helping him, against the vices of the flesh and his evil thoughts. It is a classic ploy of the devil to tempt a monk against stability, obedience, and conversazione. The devil is extraordinarily perspicacious and clever, always finding new ways to tempt a monk against the three vows our Benedictine profession, stability, obedience, and conversion of manners. And he generally makes his most um, continuous and uh, artful efforts at 
and stability are by far the most frequent and the most deadly. If the devil succeeds in destabilizing a monk, the rest will fall. So the temptation against stability, and, and this temptation against stability, uh, I, I often compare it to the temptations of uh, men in marriage and family life. The devil knows that if he can destabilize the husband and father, the whole family will be brought down. That's, that's the classic ploy for the destruction of the families to destabilize the husband and father. And nothing so shakes the community as monks who have become unstable, destabilized, these temptations against stability uh, are by far the most pernicious. And so it is a, a classic ploy of the devil to tempt a monk, first against stability, then against obedience, and finally against conversion of manners. And generally, temptations occur in that order. The devil has his own infernal logic, doesn't he? Uh, it's not uncommon for a young monk to have his head uh, filled with fantasies of the eremitical life. In the best of circumstances, let's just say, uh, at least 15 years after solemn profession and monastic consecration are needed, before a monk begins to be ready to live in solitude or even in reclusion. So it, it, it's not easy to make a monk. It takes a very long time. I'm reminded of the married couple who on their golden jubilee holy matrimony said now we have begun to be married after 50 years of marriage we have begun to be married so uh, one mustn't assume that after a few years in the monastery one is ready to live in solitude or even in reclusion the wisest abbots begin by allowing a monk with legitimate, eremitical aspirations to go into solitude for one day a month, then for one day every fortnight, and finally for one day a week, before allowing him to pass a longer time in the hermitage. Even then, the aspiring hermit is required to follow a stricter rule than his cenobitical brethren. Rising earlier, praying more, eating less, working and doing everything else at rigidly fixed hours, lest self-will and shiftlessness open the door to the devil. The devil in the hermitage is worse than the devil in the synopian, because his territory is smaller and more confined, and because he can concentrate all his uh, 
machinations on one man to tempt, to deceive, to bring him down. It's well known that some permits descend slowly into madness. The, the hermitage is not tidy. Hermit begins to neglect himself. He doesn't wash. He doesn't change his clothes. There is a, a chaos in the hermitage, and the number of hermits who have descended into madness is, is alarming. Others eat and drink and smoke and entertain visitors. The number of hermits who all of a sudden develop a following, and there are people making a path to the door of the hermitage for a little consultation. There are hermits who spend hours on the internet watching movies and keeping up with Facebook. There are hermits who spend long hours on the telephone giving spiritual direction. Or on FaceTime or in online discussion groups about solitude and silence and the exigencies of the eremitical life. Still, other hermits are never at home, always on an errand, always on a visit, a work of mercy. And the priest hermit, the priest hermit, is particularly at risk in this regard. It's by far more dangerous uh, for a priest to uh, attempt the eremitical life. And, and that's, that's classic. So, I could say much more about this, but for St. Benedict, his disposition to the eremitical life is favorable. And he sees it, in fact, as a normal development under grace, a progression uh, in the monastic journey. So St. Benedict is not at all opposed to, nor does he close the door uh, that opens onto greater solitude, but he is prudent. And uh, the little <coughs> section of chapter 1 that treats of the requirements of the eremitical life. It's, it's, it's a masterpiece. I don't have time here to go through it with you, praise by praise, but it's shot through prudence. A third and most baneful kind of monks are the Sarabites, who have been tried by no rule. They want to be monks, by a rule, nor by the experience of a master. They want to be monks, but don't want to obey. St. Benedict says they are soft as lead, impressionable, still serving the world in their works, and by their tonsure lying to God. These are the chaps who want to have the appearance of a monk want to have nothing to do with death to self. 
who don't want to go under the funeral hall. I'm reminded of the, the young man who visited here and he had great monastic aspirations. He had the notion somehow that, as I said the other day, monastic life was an endless sacral liturgia conference. You know? And so he had this notion that he would come and just, uh, uh, I don't know, you know, swan about cleaning cloisters uh, to strains of Gregorian chant all his life. Never really gave any thought to death to self. And I invited him to attend the solemn profession of Don Benedict. And when Don Benedict got down on the floor and was covered with the black funeral pall, this young man took fright. <laughs> and he said, I didn't know it was really about a death. He said, I'm not ready for this. And so the, the Sarabites, they want to be uh, all of the agreeable bits of monastic life and the appearance without the death to self through obedience. And then St. Benedict talks about the gyrovags, girovagi. These spend all their lives wandering about, restlessness, instability, never satisfied. Ah, this monastery has it all say one thing, so I'll go to the next place and, and find it there. He goes there and, no, this point of observance isn't exactly what I'm looking for, and so he goes to the next monastery, to the next, I think I told you, I, I, I know of a, of a chap in America who has made no less than 27 attempts at monastic life. He's entered monastic life 27 times. And each time he leaves, because it doesn't correspond, what he finds in the monastery does not correspond to his ideal. And the marvelous that, that he, he, he was accepted over and over and over and over again in different monasteries. So he tried absolutely everything, from the little brothers of Jesus in the Sahara Desert to the missionaries of charity of Mother Teresa uh, in, in Thailand, uh, and uh, the, the Charter House and the Kamal and every manner of Trappist and Benedictine, the man has tried everything and nothing measures up to his idea. And so he, he's, he's now known and he's uh, a very articulate critic of monastic life and of observances. He can tell you everything that is wrong about uh, any given monastery. It has never been able persevere longer really than six months in any one place. And so uh, uh, there may be, there may be uh, pathology involved, I'm sure there is, uh, but it remains that this kind of wandering about with no stability um, is, is, is not monastic life. And um, the only remedy for the interior gyrovate. There's a bit of a gyrovate in each one of us. The man who isn't satisfied, the man who's critical, the man who's loath to fix his stability, the man who's always looking elsewhere, thinking life would be better, you know, uh, in another monastery, in another uh, 
geographical situation in another climate where the food is different, where the abbot is more is wiser and more saintly, uh, where the, the the brethren are more uh, agreeable and and uh, the conversation is more elevated and the work is more gratifying and the chant is better and the architecture is more pleasing to the eye. On and on and on and on. All these are temptations. St. Benedict says of the most wretched life of these, it is better to say nothing than to speak. He talks about the snares of gluttony. This very famous man in North America, Patrick, Patrick, oh, come to me. was it Old Rafferty, who tried monastic life, he tried life as a Trappist. You may have heard of him. And he tried life as a He's very famous in North America. He tried life as a Trappist and then became a Benedictine oblate and went, visited every monastery in North America, uh, just hitchhiking from one place to another until he was of a very great age. But he was so clever, he used to go not only to Benedictine and Trappist houses, but to he would arrange to arrive. Um, at a Franciscan house on the Feast of St. Francis, at, at the Dominicans on the Feast of St. Dominic, at the Abbey of Our Lady of the Assumption on the Feast of the Assumption, because he was assured of getting a splendid meal <laughs> if he showed up on the local feast day. And he, he traveled from monastery to monastery for about 40-some years. And finally, he, he, he was in one monastery and was found dead. Uh, with his, his uh, he used to carry a, a backpack with him, and uh, he wore a gigantic Saint Benedict medal and a backpack, and he was he was most uh, eccentric. Um, but he's uh, almost a caricature. He was almost a caricature of Saint Benedict's dark legs. Saint Benedict concludes, leaving them alone. Therefore, he doesn't like to dwell on what's negative. It's a beautiful thing about our Father Saint. Mentions it insofar as awareness of these things is useful and necessary, but then he says, We're not going to, to dwell on this. Let us set to work by the help of God, again, this reliance on grace, to lay down a rule for the Semites, that is, the strongest kind of monks. Much more could be said about this chapter.